Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, hour two. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the nation from Atlanta, Georgia. The phone number 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. I want to start out of the gate first. There are a number of people on phones. I intend to get to you before the next commercial break. Just be patient with me. I don't want to start with phone calls, though, because I want to admit something. Every once in a while, I have to do this, and you won't often hear people in my space do this, but I want to do it. I was wrong. I was wrong about something. I want to admit I was wrong about something. Uh, Precisely what is this? I really did not think that the Dobbs decision would incite Democratic voters as much as it did. A lot of people said it would, and I was like, no. And initially, a lot of the polling that came out suggested I was right. But uh, what we're actually seeing in the real world versus the polls is that actually it did. Now, uh, you have to understand, though, what's going on here. This is not about converting voters or even bringing new voters out. What the data shows is that um, what's happening is Democratic voters were probably going to sit this election out. And now a lot of them, particularly female Democratic voters, are fired up over the Dobbs decision, and they intend to go vote in November. And that has something to do with the narrowing of the polls. Democratic voters who are disaffected by and concerned about the economy and inflation and crime and education are fired up about abortion, and they'll go vote. I think, however, though I was wrong about that, I think that the prevailing media consensus is wrong about this. They have bought into the idea, long dismissed by pollsters on both sides, but still conventional wisdom, that if Democrats just show up, they win. That's not true. And it's even less true now than in the past because there has been a shift of non-white voters towards the GOP. Though small, it's significant enough to matter. And independent voters are still overwhelmingly uh, concerned about the economy and not abortion. So yes, this has fired up Democratic voters more than I thought it would. But no, I don't see it now causing Democrats to win in November. And there's a prevailing consensus in the national media that that's exactly what's going to happen. You hear more and more conversations in the national press that suddenly the Democrats have a shot at holding the House. They don't have a shot at holding the House. If these Democrats show up, they will be offset by one, Republicans, two, gerrymandered districts, and three, independent voters also now voting for Republicans. I have told you for months the generic ballot was going to narrow, and it did. Tom Bevan at Real Clear Politics had a piece over the weekend. I've been citing Sean Trendy to everyone about it, but it's actually Tom Bevan's piece 
uh, showing that in Republican years, you tend to have the exact phenomenon going on right now. As I've told you guys ad nauseum, uh, that you could expect the Democrats and the Republicans to get to parity on the generic ballot before all the votes roll over to likely voters and you see Republicans going up again. And what still matters most to most voters is the economy and inflation and crime. Uh, you've got a lot of Democrats out there saying that inflation is now going to be less of an issue for voters. It's rapidly fading. I don't think it is. I think it's just manifesting itself in other ways, very much like uh, the whole trigger for the Biden administration to suddenly go upside down on polling was Afghanistan. And ever since Afghanistan, the uh, Joe Biden's polling has been underwater pretty significantly. And it's not like voters now are focused on Afghanistan, but it was a precipitating event that changed their minds on Joe Biden. And so you could get to November and have a lot of voters not at the forefront of their mind focused on inflation per se, but the economic anxiety of their lives will still be caused by inflation and so indirectly It'll be inflation as much of Afghanistan as much as Afghanistan still in polling come election day. So I was wrong on the abortion stuff, but here's the other thing. And this needs to be said, and I don't think it's going to be appreciated by the people who should hear it. I was wrong in 2016. I didn't think Trump would win. And the polling confirmed as much that Trump was not going to win. And I was one of the last people to start distrusting the polling. And he won. Now, he didn't win the popular vote, and the polling picked up the popular vote. The polling did a very bad job, though, of translating the popular vote to the electoral college vote because the polling looked at the national electorate and not at the swing state battleground electorate. In the polling, that's only looking at the battlegrounds. The Republicans are doing pretty good. In fact, the CBS News battleground tracker that only looks at battleground states, the Republicans are still up two in the generic ballot. So I think this means Republicans aren't going to win. a. They were talking about, oh, we could win a seat that Biden had won by 10 points. No, you're not going to do that now in those coastal areas of the country that are already Democrat. But in suburban areas, that's Biden plus two, Biden plus three, you can still win. And I think Republicans will. And the larger point here is I was wrong in 2016 and the polling didn't accurately reflect it. And if you were a longtime listener of my program, you will remember the day after the election in 2016, I came on the radio and ate some crow and said, look, if this is the case, if I got it that wrong, I've got to reassess and figure out why I got it wrong and what do I need to listen to that I wasn't otherwise listening to. And a lot of people in the media never did that. And they just assumed it was a fluke and Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and Russia stole it. They never had to reassess. Now I never bought into the Russia stole the election crap. And a lot of people, they bought into it if only so they never had to admit they were wrong. I was willing to admit I was wrong. So fast forward to 2020. In 2020, very few people saw the Republican wave coming. Very few people did. There was a blue wave in this country in 2020, and it helped get Joe Biden elected. But what no one saw was the offsetting corresponding red wave. 
where the Republicans not only picked up some state legislative seats around the country, uh, they picked up New Hampshire. They held seats they were otherwise going to lose. They held legislatures they were otherwise going to lose at the state level. The Republicans came within about five seats of taking back the House of Representatives. And they would have held the Senate had Georgia Republicans not convinced themselves to avoid going to vote. And nobody saw that. And the polling did not pick up that. And so, you know, listen, um, I go back to 2016. I, I was I was wrong about that, and I've clearly been wrong about uh, the uh, the impact of abortion on Democratic voters. And again, it's very important you understand, we now have several special elections, and we have the Kansas vote, and here's what we know based on the exits, not based on the polling, but based on the people who actually showed up and vote. What's happening is abortion transcends parties. It's not completely just Democrats who are impacted. There are moderate Republicans who still vote Republican, but are pro-abortion and they will vote on that issue. They did in Kansas. But also, Democratic voters who are going to sit out this election because they're mad at Joe Biden and just say, screw it, let the Republicans have it, uh, they're suddenly fired up enough to show up and vote. It doesn't matter, though, because of the number of independent voters and minority voters who are shifting to the GOP. If they all show up and vote in November, the GOP is still going to have a good night and still probably will take back the Senate. That's getting lost in the murky conversations. And so this goes back to this other point. I'm willing to reassess when I get things wrong. And I think a lot of people in the media aren't. They can't admit it. And in 2020, the very same people who didn't see Trump winning in in 2016, they missed the red wave in 2020. And we're seeing now a very cyclical pattern in 2022, just as in 2014, just as in 2010, just as in 2002, midterm elections, the Republicans see the Democrats make inroads in August towards September, and then suddenly the polls switch to likely voters and the Republican base explodes and the Republicans win. We're seeing the exact same pattern. And I'm not sure we should say, well, the rules don't apply. This is different. This is unlike anything else. We've never seen anything like this. When actually, this looks exactly like what happens every time Republicans make inroads. 2010 was the big exception because there was so much anger at Barack Obama in 2010 over Obamacare. So you've got these media narratives that have shaped up that, oh, well, you know, it looks like the Democrats are fired up now. The Democrats have momentum. The Democrats could could pick up the kid, keep the Senate. They could make gains in the Senate. They could actually hold the House. I don't think that's the case. And I think the people saying this are the very same people who missed the 2020 Republican wave. They missed the Republican insurgent strength in 2020. They know their polls are broken. They don't know how to fix their polling. They're inside a media echo chamber that reiterates what the Democrats want you to believe. Republicans have all but left the media. There have been a series of stories about how Republicans no longer return reporters' phone calls. They don't even try to help shape the prevailing national media narratives. They're bypassing the national media. They're going to Fox News and Newsmax and OAN and, and talk radio, and they're texting, and they're talking directly to their voters. They don't need the New York Times, to help them with their narrative. All of this is to say that, yeah, I do think that uh, abortion has fired up some Democrats and they're going to turn out in November. And I didn't originally think that it really would fire them up as much. But I also think that the media that missed the Republicans in 2020 and the media that missed the Donald Trump surge in 2016 and the media that acknowledges Republicans aren't talking to them and the media that acknowledges uh, Democratic polling is broken, maybe can't see what's going on under the surface. But I can tell you when I go to the grocery store, 
people aren't complaining about abortion. They're complaining about grocery prices. And there are still, I did that Joe Biden stickers on gas pumps around the country. Gas prices may be going down, but they're still high. Inflation may not be going up as much, but it's still high. It's not deflationary. The economy is headed into recession. I actually think we may be missing seeing a Republican surge happening, particularly after the cancellation of student loan debt and Biden's speech last week, and the media is not going to pick up on it. And by the way, I think the Republicans do take back the Senate. I think they pick up Georgia. I think Herschel Walker wins. The chairman of the Democratic uh, Senatorial Campaign Committee, Gary Peters, was in Michigan over the weekend, and he was asked how the lay of the land looks, and he cited Arizona, and he cited Pennsylvania, and he cited Nevada even, and New Hampshire. He never mentioned Georgia. Never mentioned Georgia. When the chairman of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee doesn't mention Raphael Warnock beating Herschel Walker, you know, the Democrats, they're not as sure that this thing is a done deal for them as the media would have you believe. I could admit I was wrong, but none of these people ever will. But I'm beginning to think they actually are wrong. Now, as promised, before I get out of here to commercial break, I do want to take at least one phone call. I'll get the others on the other side of the break. Jerry, you're going to be up first. Welcome. Thank you for uh, taking my call, Eric. Sure. Uh, two points. You told us how hot it is today in Mexifornia. It used to be above 100 degrees at noon during summer when I lived there in the 1990s. Tell me whether the wind is blowing for windmills. Yeah. Second, yeah. nobody is reporting that California tried this zero-emissions engineering car mandate back in the uh, late 1980s through early 1990s. The idiots mm-hmm. that the California Air Resources Board failed then, and they'll fail again. Yeah, look, I, you know, I totally forgot about that one until you raised it. You're right, and it caused all sorts of problems and forced Congress to do the CAFE standards because California went nuts on it, and, and Congress had to preempt them, um, which is one of the big reasons we had all the, the crazy CAFE standards we did for a while. That's a good point, Jerry. Uh, they never learned their lesson. You know, this is the great thing about being a progressive. Jonah Goldberg once wrote this great book called Liberal Fascism. And one of the things he pointed out is one of the best things about being a progressive is you never need a sense of history because it's new and created new every single day. So you never learn from your mistakes in the past, which explains why progressives keep digging holes they fall into themselves. You can call in and be a part of the program if you want. Let's go to the phones. I want to go next to Steve. Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show, Steve. How are you? I am well, Eric, and yourself? Doing great. Good, good. I want to thank you for your show and your boldness, your honesty. And I listen, not every day, but a lot of days I listen to you, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Eric, I've held off calling on this a long time. I'm retired from... uh, I hate hate to even say it. Um, I've been in the power, energy, electric industry for over 40 years. And I worked in the transmission end of the business, which is substations and the high lines and the high voltage stuff. And most people don't know this, but there's every system we had. I'm retired now, have been for a number of years but had backup battery systems because, you know, when the power's out, 
you got to have some way to operate the right. system, and they operated off of DC. I say all that to say to kind of preface this thing, but we worked on battery systems my whole career, and they're still working on them. Um, and I tell you, this thing of California and the, and the electric cars, you know, I've got family member that's got electric cars, and we don't discuss it a whole lot. They they have their place, mm-hmm. but yeah, they do. My my concern is the country is split up into different grids, a number right. of grids. You you probably know all this, but do you remember? I can't remember ten, twelve, fourteen years ago, on the east coast, there was a power plant problem up in the northeast, and it just it just drained the east east down. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Okay, and this is the way it works. If you fill a bathtub or a sink full of water and you jerk the plug out, it creates a funnel. Mm-hmm. Well, if, and my concern is I've heard this, but I haven't heard it in a long time. They start talking about tying these grids together. Well, I hate to say it, that poor man out there in California, he, he ain't got back sense. But, you know, they can't, like you said, they ain't got enough of this and they ain't got enough of that to do, uh, you know, talking about taking nuclear plants out of out of service and, and that sort of thing. There's no way to supply that much power right. for that many cars. Well, and, and you, you know, Stephen, and I, I appreciate the phone call. I got to let you go there because because I, I got to we got to get out of here with a commercial break. But, you know, that to your last point there. Even the federal government is saying you string all this stuff together outside of the, these divided grid systems, you're going to cause overloads everywhere. Uh, the grid's more manageable now. It's also less hackable right now. And what California wants to do is going to have cascading effects messing up all of us. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson. I hope you had a great time off, a great holiday weekend. The phone number is 877 877- Nine seven three seven four two five. I want to go back to the phones. I want to start with Ed. You're up next, Ed. Welcome. How are you? Hey, Eric. How are you? Great. Listen, um, this is at the edge of my memory, but I remember in the seventies, it was predictions that we were going to run out of oil. Uh, I know there's other causes for yeah the oil crisis, but there were people saying that in two to three decades, all the oil would. The known oil reserve would be tapped out, and then the carburetors turned to. I mean, part of the solution, of course, was improved oiling, uh, drilling methods, improved, uh, I guess, transportations, and but also lack of use. Like the carburetor turned to the uh, fuel injectors. Do you feel or do you think that there's, you know, then you know, I heard that mother. Uh, what is it? Uh, the mother and invention. No, I did that wrong. Necessity is the mother and invention. Yeah. We need more electric. Somebody will create something that would, you know, double or triple the amount of kilowatts or whatever that we have currently using. Oh, you know, yeah. So I'm glad you said this, and and this gives me a little little chance to to riff on something I've I've actually spent way more time thinking about than I should um, when when I don't want to think about other stuff. And and just to to back up to to Ed's point here, and thanks Ed for the phone call. Back in the 1960s and 70s, there were a number of Malthusians. Uh, Malthus was a philosopher who believed that uh, we were headed towards population crisis and the world would end in mass starvation and the like. Uh, and I forget the guy's name in the 60s and 70s was convinced we we're going to run out of everything. We we're going to run out of oil and every mineral. 
And a number of economists, free market economists, bet the guy that, no, we wouldn't. The free market can actually manage these things better. Uh, but peak oil is a phenomenon. The idea that we have a, a maximum amount of oil in the ground and we were reaching the peak, we weren't going to have any more of it. And in fact, uh, we're now producing more oil in this country, or we were until Biden, uh, than in the 70s and 80s. Uh, new extraction methods, new new tools, new um, new research to be able to get oil out of the ground. But then that gets to the battery and other things. How do we produce electricity? Every kid in school, I think, does this experiment. You wrap a copper wire around a, an iron nail, and then you take a U-shaped magnet and you move it back and forth. And if you hold on to the ends of the wire, you feel the electricity, you feel the tingle. And so the way you produce electricity is to move a magnet over a copper coil wrapped around an iron metal rod. That's how electricity is produced. That's what a generator is. And all of our technology for producing that electricity is actually not to produce electricity. It's to produce steam. Now, there's a caveat here because there is another way to produce electricity. And that's what the solar panels do. It's not as efficient, but it works. Solar panels produce electricity through uh, photovoltaic cells that convert sunlight into electricity, and it doesn't have to do with uh, spinning a magnet around a copper coil. But windmills, that's all a windmill is, is, is it's a copper coil with a magnet around it, and the windmill spins the magnet around it to produce electricity. What does a nuclear power plant do? The nuclear power plant generates heat to boil water efficiently, to generate steam, through which you can run in a, in, a, uh, in a nozzle and fire off at the generators to spin the generators to spin the magnets around the copper coils that are around the iron rod. What is hydroelectric power? It pushes water under pressure through a system that spins the generators. What is coal power? It boils the water to generate the steam just like a nuclear power plant does, except less efficiently. Same with natural gas plants. Natural gas, coal, nuclear, hydro, wind, they're all about getting us to spin a magnet around a copper coil that is surrounding an iron rod, and that generates electricity. The only, to my knowledge, and there may be others, because uh, I'm not an engineer, I just, I think about this stuff, but I'm not an engineer, but uh, photovoltaic cells and solar panels is about the only other way I can think of where people really create electricity that doesn't involve spinning uh, carbon around spinning uh, copper around an iron core. I, I mean, you know, they've got a, a system out in California now where you have a bunch of mirrors that are pointed at a ball of water and that ball of water generates steam when the mirrors all align with it. It's a different sort of take on solar power and it's actually using the heat of the sun to boil the water as opposed to nuclear power or something. And pilots taking off from Las Vegas and Los Angeles have problems because when the light hits wrong, it can blind the pilots. It's such a powerful uh, reflection. But that's, that's what's going on. And I just keep thinking, 
if there is a now, I actually I want you to know this, and and this isn't really for debating points, but I I kind of believe we're alone in the universe, and that even if we're not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because all of the galaxies of the universe are spreading further and further apart. So we may uh, have other life in this galaxy. We haven't found it. Given the speed of light, uh, maybe there's a, a civilization that has invented some way, a warp drive or something like in Star Trek. So you get along with it. You know, the whole th- theory of the warp drive, and it's actually there's a scientific principle there, is you create a bubble in which inside the bubble, uh, time doesn't it move faster than the speed of light, uh, but the, the bubble causes a gravitational field that folds space. So you're moving across space faster than the speed of light when really you're not traveling faster than the speed of light. You've just folded space inward uh, to like a sheet of paper, draw two dots on either end of the paper and fold the paper together so the dots are connected. I don't know whether that'll happen or not, but if there's an advanced civilization out there that has invented faster than light technology, they've clearly come up with another way to produce power other than boiling water to spin it, uh, to spin magnets around a copper wire that's wrapped around an iron core. There's got to be other ways to produce power that we just don't know about. In the same way, there's got to be other uh, battery power out there other than lithium-ion batteries. Lithium-ion kind is the gold standard right now because not only does it hold more power more efficiently than the, the acid batteries that you use, for example, in cars or your, your uh, Energizer and Duracell batteries you use in electronics, that, and it doesn't leak over time. You know you can buy little lithium batteries now uh, that look like your little alkaline batteries and they don't leak. I've been replacing my double A's with those in devices I don't use frequently because I don't want to open them up one day and have the battery leak out. The lithiums won't leak. But there's got to be more and, and scientists actually are exploring. There's a there's a nickel alloy. Uh, there's a carbon graphite fiber. They think it, it difficulty. This one is, has to be aligned in such a way as to hold power. But they continue to develop new technologies. And it just seems to me that instead of forcing people into battery powered cars, lithium ion particular lithium and cadmium batteries that right now don't have we don't have enough on planet Earth. There is not enough lithium on planet Earth to sustain all of the needs of battery-powered vehicles. So either we've got to figure out deep space exploration and how to go faster than the speed of light to get it back here in time, or we got to come up with a different sort of battery technology. And scientists are working on it. But I just, I, I go back to this thing, and, and I realize this is kind of a dumb point, and I shouldn't be wasting our time on it. I'm blaming Ed, the caller, for doing it. But just think about this. From, from our history of energy production, what is our history of energy production? Going back to a water wheel and a windmill, it is to move water at a fast enough speed under pressure to be able to spin a magnet around a copper wire that is wrapped around an iron core to generate electricity. That's it. That is the history of electric power in on planet Earth. you got to move water. And the fastest way to move water under pressure is to convert it to steam. So you have to create heat to turn the water to steam to at pressure, pipe it through to spin the turbines. And I'm just, I'm baffled by the idea I'm baffled by the idea that 
other than photovoltaic cells, which don't do it as efficiently. That's a solar panel technology. It's not as efficient. We don't. We haven't come up with another way. Maybe there's not another way. Maybe there's not. Maybe this is it. Maybe God created two ways to create power, and we've discovered them both. I have a sneaking suspicion there's some other way. Now, a buddy of mine just sent me this technology and said uh, they're actually one of the other new technologies is an iron flow battery. This is from Bloomberg News, and it dropped uh, September last year. The world's electric grids are creaking under the pressure of volatile fossil fuel prices and the imperative of weaning the world off polluting energy sources. A solution may be at hand thanks to an innovative battery that's a cheaper alternative to lithium-ion technology. SB Energy, a U.S. renewable energy firm that's part of SoftBank, is making a record purchase of batteries manufactured by ESS Inc., the Oregon company says it has new technology that can store renewable energy for longer and help overcome some of the reliability problems that have caused blackouts. The units, which rely on something called iron flow chemistry, will be used in utility-scale solar projects dotted around the U.S., allowing these power plants to provide electricity for hours after the sun sets. SB Energy will buy enough batteries over the next five years to power 50,000 American homes a day which ain't great in the grand scheme of things, but it's something. Long-duration energy storage like iron flow batteries are key to this. Now, this is fascinating, one, because it's cheaper, and two, uh, because it seems to be more scalable at lithium-ion batteries. Lithium-ion batteries for grid-scale storage can cost as much as $350 per kilowatt hour. These iron technology batteries cost $200 per kilowatt hour or less. That's pretty good. I just, again, listen, I, I don't mean distractions. I got a lot of other stuff to talk about. Ed's call is kind of distracting because I literally was thinking about this this weekend, that it is just weird to me. We can send men to the moon and we can send a robot to fly as a helicopter on the surface of Mars and transmit pictures back to our planet of what's happening on Mars and all of our human energy to produce energy still mostly goes to how do we boil water more efficiently to spin a magnet around a copper coil around an iron core. It just seems like there should be something else there. One more call on this before we go to break. Then I, I really, I got to move on to other stuff. Uh, Jaime, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hey, how you doing there? Great. Now, listen, uh, I'm so proud of you. I remember when you first started and I told you that uh, people were going to attack you, the devil was going to attack you. Now you're probably going to attack from all angles, aren't you? <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> well, listen, I was looking at the movie 1984, and I realized in California, if they make everybody get an electric vehicle, then only the elite would have to be uh, the wherewithal to actually charge it because everybody else will have to stand in line and they'll have to take public transportation. It's another, another form of control. Oh, yeah, listen, I, I, I think that's what they want. I, I mean, you read some of the articles from environmentalists who want you to have a battery-powered car. One, they're opposed to your leisure driving. They think it's a waste of your time. 
uh, and a waste of infrastructure. Two, they don't think most people need vehicles, that that it's a sign of the American dream, a chicken in every pot and a vehicle in every garage, the Herbert Hoover ideal, that's nonsense. Uh, and three, they think it's a waste of resources that you can use public transportation. So I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, they want the elite in this country to be able to have free movement and you, you're going to just have to go to work. Uh, I, I'm the, the dystopian future we have if we follow these left-wing ideals, I think is actually more problematic than, than people want to talk about. And I really do wish that Republicans headed into November would spend way more time on a topic like this, on how uh, what the left is painting our, their vision of the future is deeply dystopian, where you're not going to be able to have a car to get you to where you want to go. You're going to be forced to take public transportation if you can take public transportation. And you people who live out in the country are going to be rounded up and forced to relocate to a city because you're not going to be able to have a car that can get you back and forth. And you farmers, well, good luck getting out there with your oxen to plow your field because you're not going to have gas to fill up a tractor. Now, along the way, hopefully we won't get rid of the Eden Pure Thunderstorms. And I, I told you that the, you, you had a week to do the BOGO, but at least you can get the three-pack. If you go to EdenPureDeals.com and you put, um, you put what is it now? My mind goes blank at times like this. Eric 3, that's it. E-R-I-C-K 3. If you go to EdenPureDeals.com on the front page of the website, you'll see the discount box. You put in Eric and then the number 3, not T-H-R-E-E, but Eric and the number 3. No space, Eric 3. You'll get the Eden Pure 3-pack. Uh, you get three Eden Pure Thunderstorms. What are they? They're air purifiers. I had to use one this weekend. So I'm working on a fried chicken Nashville's hot fried chicken sandwich recipe for you guys. And I've made it twice now. I think I pretty much got it distant out this week, but it was pouring down rain the other day and I had to fry in the kitchen. And I got the grease too hot at the end and it smoked and it stunk up the kitchen and I had to break out the Eden Pure Thunderstorm. My wife was asleep. I didn't want her to know. I fired up the Eden Pure Thunderstorm. It wiped out the odors. It kills pet odors. It kills like a pee box odors from a cat. It kills smoke odors. It kills fry odors, cook odors, musty odors. It gets rid of the pollen and the dust floating in the air. It does great. It packs a wall up. You can get three of them for less than $200. You're saving $200 and you get free shipping. You go to EdenPureDeals.com. You put Eric3 in as your discount code. EdenPureDeals.com, Eric3. So just by political convention, the start of the general election season tends to happen now. Uh, right after Labor Day is when people get into general election mode. Most of the primaries are over. There are a few left. New Hampshire, one of the last states to hold primaries. Uh, everybody else is into general election mode, and and it begins now, the, the full court press to November. And as a result, today, the governor of Florida is unveiling his general election message. Uh, it's worth listening to. Uh, his wife pushed this out on social media and said, uh, you're going to start seeing this on TVs across Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, Governor Ron DeSantis. Today, we deliver for the people of Florida yet again. You saved our jobs and kept us going. They tried to shut us down, but you saved our business. You had our backs. And honored our service. You led by facts, not fear. And you let us decide. You let me go to school. You gave me a voice. You put us first. And didn't let them keep us apart. You let us learn. You let us compete. All of us. You protected our right to worship together in person. 
And you raised our pay. You protected our waters. And kept Florida beautiful. When they attacked you, you didn't cave. You stood strong for Florida. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Gracias, Governor DeSantis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Governor DeSantis. Now, I want to go back through and I'm going to turn the volume down so so you can barely hear it so that I can really talk over this because you need the visuals here. Um, this is, he starts off with him at a campaign rally. And now you have a middle-aged white lady at a, working at a bar. And she goes to a middle-aged white man working the back of the bar. Now a Hispanic uh, mechanic. Now a black police officer. Uh, white veteran retired. White nurse, female. Hispanic firefighter. Young kid and mom, senior citizens with a granddaughter, teenage boy, Hispanic girl swimmer, handicapped golfer in a wheelchair, taking a swing of the ball, pastor standing in front of a church, Hispanic female teacher, uh, a ginger-headed fisherman, (laughs) white guy. I mean, across the board spectrum of diversity of businesses of people essentially saying thank you for what you did not an attack on the democrats just running on his record reminding people he defied a whole lot of people republican and democrat alike to keep florida open it's a really good ad for him 